Uh, we're going to move on to uh, an important topic, actually, is uh, drug pricing and the uh, rise of generics and the impact on Ryan White programs. And we have actually one of our nation's experts on this, uh, Tim Horn, uh, from NASDAD, the Director of Medication Access and Pricing. Tim. Um, good afternoon. <clears throat> Let's try that one more time. Good afternoon. That's better, thank you. Um, so I first need to start with an apology. Um, I am getting over a terrible case of laryngitis. Uh, so this is a bit of baptism by fire after spending the past two days uh, being very quiet. Um, so, so thank you for the opportunity uh, to uh, sort of walk through this. And uh, it's, this is uh, definitely a uh, nice sort of change of subject for the uh, last plenary of the day. Um, here are my disclosures, of which I do not have any. Um, the learning objectives are first to describe the 340B drug pricing program and its role in achieving cost containment and program income for Ryan White programs. Number two, to describe the challenges associated with, HI, with, with high um, antiretroviral uh, viral drug pricing. And finally, to assess the impact of generic drugs on program cost containment and 340B program income. <clears throat> So um, I just wanted to begin um, with data that are, you know, um, really do not require any introduction to the providers in this room, are, 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 are in fact like in, due in large part to the providers in this room. So the Ryan White HIV AIDS program, you know, not only, you know, really sets the bar for HIV care throughout the United States, and really it is a shining example of uh, effective public health um, in this country. So as we see, more than 50% of people living with HIV in the 50 states, uh, the District of Columbia, and the territories um, are serviced by the program. And of those uh, receiving medical care uh, through the program um, in 2017, 85.9% uh, were uh, virologically suppressed. So, um, and when we um, can say, <clears throat> excuse me, um, and we can say uh, with certainty that it is a comprehensive medical and support service delivery that accounts for the growing success of the program and importantly, the well-being of uh, its clients. So um, surprising no one in this room, <clears throat> medical and support services are not cheap. Um, and uh, this very much includes uh, antiretrovirals and other medications critical to the health and lives of people living with HIV. Now, What's important to remember um, is that Ryan White programs, including AIDS Drug Assistance Programs, or ADAPs, um, are not entitlements um, with guaranteed funding, and, and, uh, and they are not insurers or HMOs uh, that can actually increase premiums to bring in increased revenues. Um, so in thinking about um, the intersection of healthcare financing and cost containment, I appreciate being invited here to talk about one of my you know, personally favorite uh, you know, topics and uh, you know, also to talk about a topic that is of critical importance to uh, my work and the work of, uh, of NASTAD. And drug pricing, and importantly, the ways in which the 340B um, uh, drug pricing program helps to contain prescription drug uh, spending and strengthen revenue uh, to stretch scarce federal resources as far as possible. So, I want to back up a little bit and just talk a little bit about um, HIV drug you know, cost considerations before we sort of delve into th the 340B drug pricing program. So um, just to, I, I just wanted to just to note um, one very important um, aspect, which is that our list prices and you know, our net prices uh, for antiretroviral drugs, you know, for many of our payers, um, are, you know, they, are, they 
they really overshadow you know, the prices that are available you know, anywhere else in the world, yet our HIV care continuum outcomes are substantially lower than those in many high-income countries. And that, you know, as we know, I mean, drug pricing in general um, really has been a you know, hot topic for discussion and has really been the making of headlines you know, for, for, for several years now. And as you can see, um, HIV antiretrovirals you know, are, are certainly included within that. And, you know, and I think you know, this has certainly led to a huge you know, national dialogue. And in fact, I mean, I think when we begin to see what's happening in Congress, what we see in regulations, that you know, getting at drug pricing in this country really is where we have significant bipartisan support. So this really is a significant issue um, and it is certainly playing out in, in healthcare delivery. So let's start with the first question. Um, over the past 10 years, List prices of uh, the Health and Human Services Guidelines preferred single tablet regimens have increased by how much? A, 10% to 50%, 50% to 100%, 100% to 150%, 150% to 200%, or more than 200%. Okay, so we had 34% for more than 200%. While I appreciate the pessimism, um, we are actually at a 100% to 150%. So what I wanted to like sort of spell out here is um, in terms of how things have changed in actually a relatively short period of time, of 10 years. So really taking a look at the, you know, the preferred regimens, and these are all regimens that were preferred in 2009 um, to 2019. So what you'll see on the lower left-hand side are what were considered the preferred regimens um, uh, back in 2009. So we had one single tablet regimen, you know, um, we had a tripla, um, then we had two um, protease inhibitor, uh, retinavir uh, boosted protease inhibitor regimens, you know, plus the very first integrase inhibitor-based regimen. Um, then moving to 2019, um, we, had, uh, we have two uh, single-tablet regimens uh, plus um, uh, uh, dolutegravir-based regimens uh, that includes you know, TAF-FTC, TDF-FTC, and I will also include TDF-3TC um, in this as well, and the same thing for rotegravir. So over the past um, 10 years, uh, we started off with a, with a, with a mean price of around $2,000. 10 years later, um, we're up around like, you know, $3,500, $3,600. Um, so a significant increase there of 77%. So <clears throat> let's take a look at single tablet regimens there. Now, to be fair, <clears throat> you know, we only had one single tablet regimen available in 2009. Again, a tripla. But 10 years later, when we're taking a look at the, 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 uh, you know, the, the, the two uh, single tablet regimens that we currently have um, that, we, um, that are uh, recommended for um, uh, under most circumstances, uh, we're around $3,500 there. So that's 116% um, you know, uh, increase in the, the list prices for these drugs. So <clears throat> sort of like, let's get down to brass tacks here. Like, you know, wh 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 what does this matter here? Well, so for number one, you know, total undiscounted spending on ARVs in 2018 alone was $22.8 billion. 
that's an undiscounted. So that doesn't include the different rebates and discounts that we're going to be talking about in a little bit. So with that number, with $22.8 billion, HIV is technically you know, among the top five therapeutic classes in non-discounted spending in 2018. And, and I think when we think about it, um, it, is, you know, it is certainly one of the highest um, uh, uh, classes, you know, particularly for, low prevalence, for a, a low prevalence disease. Also, antiretrovirals um, are the number one Medicaid outpatient drug expenditure. Um, they're number five uh, for commercial plans, and they're number four for uh, Affordable Care Act plans, respectively. So public and private payers, um, we're starting to see increasing formula restrictions and utilization management, particularly around um, prior authorization. Um, and I think we've been very lucky in HIV where it really has been considered a protected class. Um, so we haven't seen a lot of movement for things like step therapy, which really is clinically very problematic. You know, but we are starting to see um, a, a much greater like, utilization management that is happening, or essentially plans that are looking to get through cost containment through formulary design. Also, I do want to underscore this here, which is out-of-pocket spending is still an issue. Um, I, I know, I'll give you an example there. It's like we have you know, many people living with HIV who are aging into the Medicare system, right? <clears throat> and we know that if you're on Medicare, you cannot use a pharmaceutical um, uh, copay assistance program. So for those individuals, if they don't have any sort of like, um, 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 ADAP coverage on that, um, those, that cost sharing can be significant, particularly if that cost sharing can be anywhere from like, you know, it, it can be like a $50 copay. It could also be up to like around 40% of that price of the pharmacy, which can be substantial. <clears throat> also, copay assistance programs are very much in the crosshairs now. Um, you know, we are starting to see pay, uh, copay accumulators, you know, by which um, uh, the, the total out-of-pocket costs or the deductibles you know, cannot be paid down uh, with um, uh, manufactured copay assistance programs. Um, we are starting to see uh, federal regulations that are really that starting to target um, co uh, these copay assistance programs. And we also have a lot of movement in, in different states, you know, to essentially outlaw um, copay assistance programs from the manufacturers. So <clears throat> let's take a look at what's available generically. What, like, what, like, what do we have in terms of like, lower cost products? Um, first, we do have a number of multi-source uh, generic drugs. We have generic Abacavir. We have a, we have a, a co-formulation of Abacavir lamivudine available generically. Adizanavir, DDI, Fosamprenavir, lamivudine, Navarapine, Ritonavir, D4T, and TDF. Now, we also do have multi-source quasi-generic brand drugs, and what do I mean by that? So the products that we have listed here are, in fact, brand name drugs, but they only include products that are off-patent. Um, and so the reason why they're brand name drugs is because there really wasn't a reference product for these to be compared to, to be approved. And really, but what, what, what led to the approval here was really based on PK data looking at the, the standalone agents. So for Mylon, we have you know, two efavirenz-based um, uh, single-tablet regimens, one that includes 400 milligrams of efavirenz versus 600. Uh, we also have a co-formulation of TDF and 3TC. And you know, the newest kid on the block in that is Celtrion's Timixis, um, which is a TDF um, um, 3TC co-formulated. And that was just commercialized within the past couple of months. Now, taking a look at pending generics, um, in September 2020, uh, we will see our first generic formulation of uh, TDF-FTC. 
Six months later, uh, we do anticipate that there will be robust competition in the marketplace um, uh, with the FDA. Um, the, 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 the product that we'll see coming out in September is Teva's um, generic product, uh, but there are at least three or four other generic formulations of TDF and FTC waiting in the, in, in the wings. A little bit further down the line, uh, there is the possibility that we will have generic versions of uh, Darunavir and Meltegavir um, by the mid-2020s. Uh, the, the mid Okay, second question. Um, can generic drugs be used in HHS guidelines recommended regimens? No. Only initial regimens in certain uh, uh, clinical situations, or both initial regimens for most people with HIV and initial regimens um, in certain clinical uh, uh, situations. Good. Yes. So uh, C is the right answer. Okay. So what I wanted to do was like highlight here, like what that potentially looks like. And um, what I've done is I've, I've highlighted, you know, both in the, uh, the the recommended initial regimens for most people with HIV, as well as the the, the recommended initial regimens um, in certain clinical uh, situations where generics can in fact be used. And I think what this is really predicated on the fact that, you know, according to the guidelines, that you know TDF and TAF are, for the most part, comparable, whereas FTC and 3TC are largely interchangeable there. Now, you know, certainly on the, the recommended initial regimens for most people with HIV, um, we can't get to a full generic regimen. However, when we do take a look at the, um, uh, the regimens in certain uh, clinical situations, we, we can, in fact, get to a, um, a, a full generic. For example, nevirapine, which is still in, in heavy utilization in the United States. So if you had nevirapine plus a generic TDF, um, you know, 3TC, you know, that is certainly an all-generic and viable regimen. So <clears throat> this is one of my favorite slides, as anybody who's heard me uh, give this talk before. Um, this is basically a walk through what our drug pricing system or systems actually looks like in the United States. And it's complicated, right? And what makes it so complicated is that, you know, really our drug pricing systems are, uh, it's, it's really, it's opaque. Um, it's based on, you know, very complex systems of discounts and rebates and other price concessions. But I just sort of wanted to give everyone sort of a quick snapshot in terms of what this looks like. So <clears throat> up at the top two black bars, we have the average um, uh, wholesale price and the wholesale acquisition cost. These are the list prices that we hear about. These are the list prices that, um, um, that, we, that, we, that we see in the media. These are the big numbers that, that we hang our hats on. Um, but in terms of what happens with the pricing, everything sort of happens below that. And I just sort of wanted to you know, first focus on the, the, the two uh, darkest uh, blue boxes up at the top. So what we have is uh, we have you know, the prices that actually happen in the, in the private sector. Basically, you know, these are the prices that um, you know, pharmacies uh, end up like, paying for products. 
And you know, below that, you know, we do see some like we do see some uh, discounts. We do see some rebating. Um, we also have copay assistance programs, so on and so forth. Well, some of those factors actually you know do impact what's happening on those private sector prices. Now, the reason why this is important is because our drug pricing systems are very much interchangeable there. So, based on you know what, what's happening in the private sector, that's going to impact what's happening on the right side of the um, screen, <clears throat> which is our, our federal purchasers, and what's happening on the left side of the screen which is our Medicaid and 340B. So just briefly, on the right side of the screen in the, uh, the medium blue boxes, um, these are, this is the formulas that are used for our federal purchasers. So the Department of Defense, the VA, the Public Health Service, including the Indian Health Service, and the Coast Guard. Those are our four are big for um, uh, federal purchasers. So, and just sort of like the, the, the short of it is, is that they are entitled to a minimum of a 24% discount off of the, you know, really the average price in the, in the private sector. So they get 24% off the top. And, you know, then what happens is, you know, there will be additional um, uh, discounting that applies. Every single time a drug takes a price increase, that is out of lockstep with the consumer price index for all, all urban customers, or essentially our inflation market in the country. Every single time they do that, a penalty is tacked on, so that actually increases the amount of discount that is taken. So federal purchasers, you know, they, they can come out with like around you know, 40 to 50 percent below, you know, really what the, what's happening in the commercial space. And of course, we have the VA, because they have a, you know, they have their own preferred formulary, they can actually negotiate additional discounts um, off of those prices. So the VA, you know, really can secure some of the best prices in the country. Now, focusing on the left side of the screen, this is what's happening in Medicaid, and this is what's also happening in 340B. And the one thing to know about 340B is 340B uses the same formula you know, to, to, for those discounting that is used to calculate the Medicaid rebate. So, and really what that means is, like for all brand name drugs, you know, that is pretty much 23.1% off the top. For generic drugs, it's 13% off the top. You know, plus, as I was saying with the federal purchasers, there's an additional penalty that is tacked on um, um, if, if price increases are taken out of lockstep with inflation. And then uh, below that, we do have um, you know, supplemental rebating and discounting that happens, you know, particularly for our age drug assistance programs in the country. <clears throat> so now let's focus on 340B and the Ryan White HIV AIDS program. So uh, just a little background on 340B. The 340B drug pricing program was actually developed to allow manufacturers to continue offering discounted drugs to safety net entities following the introduction of the Medicaid drug rebate program. Why? Well, because Medicaid required manufacturers to calculate average and best prices for the Medicaid program, and any discounts to safety net entities would essentially reduce the Medicaid reimbursement. So the 340B program was established to allow manufacturers to exclude these discounts from the Medicaid calculations. So why do manufacturers actually participate in 340B? Well, um, your manufacturers are not required to participate. They choose to participate to offer discounts. So does this mean that manufacturers are being altruistic? No. I mean, essentially, in order to, um, you know, the, 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 the reason, one of the biggest reasons that they uh, uh, participate in the 340B program is it is the only way for them to get reimbursement through Medicare Part B and Medicaid. <clears throat> so there, there really is an incentive for manufacturers uh, to participate in the program. Okay, so 340B in the Ryan White HIV AIDS program. Ryan White um, uh, grantees are essential uh, public health care programs and therefore eligible for the 340B drug pricing program. 
<clears throat> the Ryan White uh, program is also subject to extensive restrictions on how 340B can be used, and I think this sort of ties into, you know, Ryan White and the potential issues of PrEP. I mean, that 340B cannot be used uh, for PrEP. Um, and this also includes program el uh, eligible people living with HIV. And it's also, um, the, the, the 340B program income is additive and must be used um, consistent with the grant terms. And the, the one, uh, you know, sort of a, a document that I want to highlight here is um, uh, policy, clarification, uh, policy Clarification Notice 1503, which really does speak to, you know, how Ryan White um, programs, you know, can in fact be using uh, uh, revenue generated off of the 340B program income. Now, most um, Ryan White programs um, or their contract pharmacies access upfront discounts. That, that is how they actually procure the products. Now, ADAPs um, under Ryan White Part B you know, may choose either upfront discounts and or rebates um, paid by the manufacturer. And the one thing I want to, uh, just a, a special shout out here is to the ADAP Crisis Task Force, which negotiates supplemental discounts and rebates, which are possible under the 340B legislation with manufacturers and uh, agreements with all the manufacturers on behalf of all ADAPs. <clears throat> so just the program basics, just to highlight what I uh, walked through before in the um, um, in that flowchart, uh, 340B entities are subject to a minimum discount of 23.1% off the average manufacturer price. Again, what's happening in the retail space. Um, also, there might be a best price adjustment, and so that's basically, it's really looking at a larger net of purchasers. Um, so when manufacturer takes a price increase that exceeds the consumer price index uh, uh, for all urban customers, an additional rebate or inflation penalty is added to, uh, to the base discount. And what this does is it achieves um, two things. Number one, it achieves prescri uh, prescription drug cost containment. Number two, it allows for the generation of revenue or program income um, when clinics are able to purchase the drug at discounted rate but are, are reimbursed by third-party payers at a higher usual and customary rate. <clears throat> so what does this sort of look like visually? Um, on the left-hand side, you'll see um, uh, ADAPs, um, and then on the right-hand right side, you'll see the Ryan White HIV aid uh, pro uh, um, pro uh, providers. Um, so we're looking at really discounting on the, the right, and on the left, that can be discounting or rebating. So the green indicates, so first off at the top of the, um, of, of the rectangles there, um, th those, are, those are the list prices, basically the wholesale acquisition cost. <clears throat> the green indicates the discount that can be taken um, with 340B. And what I've included here is just a sketch uh, that would indicate both the base um, discount that is paid plus any CPI penalties that are added onto that. So, <clears throat> and that will bring us down to the 340B ceiling price. Now, the yellow box there, that actually indicates the voluntary you know, sub-ceiling ADAP price. So I just want to shift over to, to the right a little bit there. So as you can see, you can see where the discount is in this figure, but you can also see where program income is generated. So basically to be the difference between the 340B ceiling price and whatever um, a payer is going to reimburse the uh, pharmacy for. So <clears throat> this is three, the 340B program income over time. Um, so you know, on the left-hand side, we, let's say we have a product that is launched at $100 per tablet. Um, and as you can see, that's subject to the base um, rebate of 23.1%. The ADAPs might enjoy an additional supplemental on that. So we can see that you know, the, the program income, um, uh, it, it can be fairly generous on that. But what happens if the price increases by 40%? What happens when the price increases by 75%? Then we can see that that base um, that, 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 that base discount, it actually uh, becomes, uh, it, it, um, it, 
it, it just becomes greater because the actual the, the list price for the product um, uh, becomes much higher. And also, also because we can see so many different CPI penalties because at $175, um, for uh, over, you know, from uh, $100 list price uh, 10 years earlier, that those are going to be substantial price increases compared to what our rate of inflation is. Therefore, that drug is going to be subject to significant CPI penalties. So in that case, we do see um, that significant program income and discounting is possible on a drug that is only 10 years old. So. <clears throat> I want to talk a little bit about the, the, the challenges to the 340B program income. So, and there, there, there are a number of them. So first, <clears throat> any legislation or regulations that directly or indirectly lowers that average manufacturer price or best price, if that AMP or that best price comes down, that's going to impact um, the, both the discount and the program income uh, that would, be, that would uh, accrue to 340B entities. Number two, legislation or regulation that alter 340B drug pricing program, including entity and patient definitions. Fortunately, we have not seen that, um, you know, but that is always something to be cognizant of. Third, legislation, regulations, or policies allowing payers to reimburse 340B discount, uh, discounted drugs at lower rates. Um, also, competition that lowers um, uh, uh, list prices, the average manufacturer price, or, um, or best price. Finally, there are patent cliffs and commercialization of generic drug products. So I just wanted to quickly walk you through sort of like how this actually plays out. Um, you know, in, in terms of looking at when you have generics and the lower prices, how does this impact 340B? So what I've done up here is I've just taken, you know, really what can be a, you know, a preferred regimen in the eyes of the HHS. I've included Dalutegavir, $58 per tablet. Um, we have Truvada, $58 per tablet. Descovi, $58 per tablet. Um, TDF3TC, uh, um, uh, let's, let's use Mylon's product, $33.50 per tablet. And then we have generic TDF and 3TC. And right now, the price of it so for um, you know, TDF combined with 3TC is around $3.50 you know, for the two tablets per day. So, and then we can see where the, the Medicare and commercial um, uh, reimbursement rates um, will technically be. So, <clears throat> let's bring in 340B and what happens there. So, with Dalutegavir, um, th that brings, the, the, the price comes down around like, you know, 45 to 50 percent because that, that is a drug that has taken multiple price increases out of lockstep with the rate of inflation. That brings us down to around $28 is, is the, the net price for Dalutegavir. Now, Truvada, which has been on the market you know, since uh, 2004, 2006, that has taken substantial price increases over the years. Around, it's, right now, it's around 175 percent of its original launch price. So because of that, <clears throat> the discounting is significant. So even though a, a tablet might cost around $58, right now it's around $14, $13 for 340B programs. Now, Descovi, things get interesting, because even though Descovi has not been you know, approved for nearly as long as Truvada, um, it's subject to a mandatory 340B discount um, that would really only bring it down to uh, around, um, like around $32, $33. However, we know that Gilead Sciences is offering supplemental discounts to all of the 340B entities, you know, to really achieve parity with Truvada, you know, potentially to grease the wills of, you know, of, of, you know, sort of getting people off of Truvada and onto Descovi. Now, when we take a look at TDF3TC, again, this is a product with a much lower list price, you know, compared to uh, uh, Truvada and Descovi, yet the mandatory discount 
um, it's only 23.1% off. So for, for, for our 340B covered entities, TDF 3TC might actually cost you know, quite a bit more. And then, of course, with TDF-3TC, even with discounting. But I think the thing about TDF-3TC, what's important, is like that program income you know, really is going to be substantially less. So just quickly, I just wanted to throw up sort of like what, what's the difference so if we're taking Dalutegavir plus any of those, uh, those NRTI backbones, uh, we do see some significant difference both in the list price, <clears throat> you know, the 340B price reflective of the discounting, and also 340B program income. So, you know, there, there is certainly program income to be made with Dalutegavir plus you know, TDF and 3DC. However, it is substantially more robust, you know, with TDF, FTC, and TAP, FTC. So I just want to say a word about prep here um, is, you know, I, I, I think we're, we're really moving to a very interesting place with respect to, you know, prep and, uh, and costing issues. And really there are, there are four different factors I want to highlight, which is number one is like, you know, generic TDF um, FTC. We'll be seeing that, you know, by the end of 2020 and really robust competition that's going to see it, that's going to result in substantial price reductions in 2021. And that's good. That's good that we will have that. And I think certainly for our public health systems, you know, some of our public health programs that don't even have access to 340B, this is really going to be, make a profound difference. So how, we, we also need to like sort of like, you know, uh, compare that to where we have um, some, some brand name entries. Obviously we now have Descovi approved uh, for PrEP and um, you know, long acting Cobbetegavir, potentially in the next couple of years, we will um, uh, be seeing that approved. Now, on the right side, we also have the USPSCF recommendation, a grade A recommendation, which really is monumental. Um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's really monumental in that sense. But with the US, USPSCF, it's basically saying that, you know, um, you know uh, Medicaid expansion programs, and you know, uh, uh, you know, commercial and affordable care act um, plans that they will have to cover prep without cost sharing, and that's huge. That's tremendous. However, when we take a look at like payer cost containment, is that um, you know, commercial uh, commercial payers in particular, and even some Medicaid programs, the anticipation is going to be their feet is being. It, it, are being held to the fire by the USP, uh, USPSCF recommendation. So therefore, there's going to be an inclination to prefer generic TDF-FTC. So what happens there is like if the preference is to cover TDF-FTC and we have 340B um, entities that you know, have really generated substantial program income and revenues um, around Truvada, um, if they're going to move towards you know, covering you know, TDF-FTC um, only, that's just going to make it much more difficult for our 340B coverage entities and a lot of our prep programs to actually generate that program income there. And the one thing I'll say about that is that the payer cost containment, like, well, do we really think that payers are going to do that? Um, and, you know, it, it, I, I would say yes. And I think we've already gotten some signs uh, from United Healthcare. United Healthcare, you know, um, has actually put a prior authorization in place for Descovi, preferencing uh, Truvada, with the sake of, you know, keeping the lines open for preferring generic TDF FTC. So we're starting to see that happening there. So just in summary, the era of cost containment and generic competition has arrived. Um, clinician knowledge engagement is increasingly important there. One thing I just want to note is that payers are asking the exact same um, uh, critical questions of the data as clinicians. For example, TAF versus TDF. Does everybody need to be on TAP? Can TDF been used? Even single tablet regimens versus multi-tablet regimens. And also the added value of long-acting antiretrovirals. So I think this is something that we're going to be seeing quite a bit more of. 
Um, uh, 340B has been a lifeline uh, to U.S. HIV programs, including Ryan White Clinics and the AIDS Drug Assistance Programs. The ARV market, um, for example, generics and policy dynamics may impact 340B as a saving source. And then finally, we do really have the big question there. It's like, even if we are able to achieve cost containment with the use of lower drugs, how do we make those cost savings work for people living with HIV? So I will end with that, and I'm happy to take your questions. Great, thank you. So if you have a question, uh, please come to the mic. Can you talk about the interaction of the 340B program at an academic medical center where they also get disproportionate share funds and a Ryan White program at the same time? And the actual question is, what happens to the income? Um, that, that's, that's a great question. <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> I think that the thing about the, the, the Ryan White program uh, versus, let's say, a disproportionate share hospital <clears throat> is uh, the we know for a fact that the, the, the savings that are generated within our Ryan White programs you know, are, in fact, they are um, enrolled back into the program. We've seen that. Um, there are data on that, um, and it really is tremendous. Now, in terms of disproportionate share hospitals, you know, because that is not really coming out of a, um, of a grant line, the, the requirements um, are on that program um, are not quite as robust as we have with, uh, with, the, with the Ryan White programs. However, we do know that you know, many disproportionate share hospitals are using that 340B program income you know, to the advantage of, of, of many of their patients. Great. A question at the microphone. Yeah. So nice uh, review and straightforward in a way, but complicated. The bottom line is we were talking at our panel yesterday about keeping uh, going to generics and keeping costs down. And in looking at your data, um, it's, it's against the benefit of the clinic who's on a 340B program to go generic because their um, return or their rebate will be less. But if we think more globally, um, one of the things I've thought more about advocating is um, importation of generics from other countries so that we get a little competition. Um, because I can't imagine a lot of harm from that. And if we were to do that, it, we also would need to publish the prices, which are not mostly under cloak um, uh, for, for us to see, uh, except for AWP. So your commentary just on uh, open import of generics and, and open um, description of uh, or declaration of what pricing really is to the public. Um, let me just, it's, I, I think one of the key variables is like when we're taking a look at what happens in other countries um, is, is, is really important because it's, you know, how are we at the point where our, our drug prices are, you know, really, you know, twofold, threefold higher um, than we find in most other high-income countries? And one of, one of the, the big factors to consider on that is what, what's allowing that to happen is a process of negotiations by which... Um, uh, you know, really, those, those, those national purchasers under you know, really a nationalized healthcare system are in a position to negotiate directly with, with manufacturers um, to achieve lower prices. But I, I, think, I think the one thing we have to be cognizant of here is, and this is something that happened with the, um, uh, with the, 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 the Medicare Part D issue and sort of removing HIV or just sort of like altering what it means to be a protected class is like, you know, are we ready to subject 
HIV drug products to negotiations. Because what does a negotiation actually mean? It means, you know, empowering a payer, in this case, any of the multitudes of payers that we have in this country, to actually withhold a particular product. And that, you know, in the United States, many of our providers, because we are um, in an environment of individualized care and wanting to individualize care as much as possible, is like, you know, can we use negotiations as a cost containment measure that might actually remove a particular drug product, you know, from, you know, from access? So is that something that we can, in fact, live with? Um, um, I ask that of HIV providers, and it's certainly, you know, that, that's going to be a big question for the HIV community to consider as well. Next question. Um, are, are you aware of any um, studies that have kind of projected out what sort of cuts we might be looking at in terms of our income if, as things start to go generic? Because if we're seeing things that would maybe even cause like a 70% drop in our 340B income at the same time that we would be getting increased prior auth requirements, that sounds pretty bad. Could you repeat the question for me? Yeah, could you, uh, it's a little echoey up here, could you repeat the question? Sure. So are you aware of any projections of, of how much our 340B income might change as things go generic? Because if we have a 70% drop in our 340B income at the same time that we get increased prior auth requirements, it sounds really bad. Yeah, that's a good question. And I think the one thing that we, I think what we've been mostly focused, I'm at NASDAQ anyway, has been focusing on um, changes to program income um, in the prep space, um, really because that you know, can be substantial. Um, in, in, I think in the care space, um, I think there's been plenty of experience with that. It's just like, in fact, in the HIV space, sort of like the heyday of program income has changed considerably because I think that, just remember, you know, a tripla, you know, being, was, you know, first line for a whole lot of years and the program income that was generated off of that was really quite substantial. And I think because we, um, I, I think in the HIV space, because it is, is evolving at such a rapid clip, so many different new regimens are coming on. So. It's not as if many of our regimens actually enjoy the longevity you know, of for preferred status to, uh, to, to see some of those substantial discounts that we do, in fact. Um, but it changes. But I think in the HIV space, particularly because there will always be a place for brand name products, um, you know, I don't think that we are going to see um, any of our payers moving to, you know, like step therapy, for example, like starting everybody on a generic product before they will entertain a brand name product. I don't think that we will see that, again, because of the protected nature of the HIV treatment class. Um, so, 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 yeah, it's it, it just, but, but we do see, you know, a, sort of like every single time a new product comes out of the market, that's going to impact, you know, potential program income um, on that level. So how do discounts at 340B pharmacies affect prices for patients? Um, that's, a great, that's a great question. Um, so uh, for prices for patients, um, I think it's interesting in the, in the Ryan White um, um, space because many of our uninsured Ryan White clients are also ADAP clients. Therefore, we don't see many uninsured um, individuals presenting to the clinic and having to use the 340B program to actually access a lower price um, product. Um, you know, but this is sort of writ large. That discounting can really be quite substantial um, you know, for uninsured individuals um, in terms of being able to actually you know, um, afford uh, medication. I think one, a good example of that you know, might be like Truvada. 
um, for prep is that even though we're still talking around, you know, even though we've gotten 340B pricing down to like $14 you know, per tablet, that's still around $450 a month you know, for an uninsured 340B client. So I don't know if that makes or breaks it there, but in, you know, by and large, you know, the 340B programs, particularly when we have a product that isn't, that, that isn't priced so, I'll say egregiously, um, like if you're talking about a product, you know, a 340B discount off of a drug that costs $100 versus $3,000, you really can't make the difference between you know, affordability and no access at all. So based on volume, why can't we get similar pricing uh, for Ryan White programs compared to VA pricing? Um, that, that's a great question. And, and I think in, for, for 340B, um, and sometimes we do see prices that are, um, you know, that they do beat VA pricing. Um, but again, so for a lot of the new products that come onto the market, um, because those are subject to a lot less discounting of 23.1%, um, that might be comparable to what we see for some of the other big four on pairs, but not necessarily the VA. Um, ADAPS, um, I will say, just given the, the supplemental discounts of that place, um, all I can really say on that is that, you know, the VA um, and age drug assistance programs are, are by far getting the best possible prices in, in the country. Okay, maybe one more question here. Where are we in discussion in getting the uh, fixed dose combination of darunavir, cobacistat, TAF, FTC, cost neutral, and on ADEPS? Um, that's a wonderful question. Um, it, it's, 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 right, it's, it's interesting because it's, you know, Sintuza really was the one that broke the bank, right? $43,000, you know, per year for that. Um, and I, I will just say that, you know, the age assistance programs, um, I think that the AIDA Crisis Task Force has worked very, very hard, you know, to achieve, you know, neutrality um, within, you know, for, within ADAP. Um, but in terms of getting us to price neutrality at the list price level, um, that is going to be, you know, quite a challenge indeed. Great. All right, well, I think uh, we'll probably end on time to allow people to get to the break. Uh, thank you to Tim Horn.